0: let it's talk about forgiveness and the importance of forgiveness in the church with one another, the importance for forgiveness out in the community, in our relationships, that in, in every place forgiveness is a foundational and paramount uh, effort or <laughs> establishment, however you would like to put it, so that we can relate to one another. And one of the most profound, I think, forgiveness stories that we see in uh, the Bible is in Acts chapter 21. And it's that little tiny verse when Paul is on his way to to Jerusalem that he stops off at a guy named Philip's house, uh, which is just one little blurb. He stayed at Philip's house and he was there. But he notes that Philip was one of the seven. And so if we do a little history, we go back to Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 6 and uh, way back in the beginning of the church, what we see is that the seven, it was the first seven deacons. So Philip knew probably as a friendship and probably uh, you know, through church in different ways. We don't know entirely, but he knew Stephen. And if you remember Stephen, Stephen is kind of touted as the first church martyr. He is stoned to death by Jewish leaders that reject the Christian faith and the idea that, that Christ is uh, uh, God and that he was crucified for sins in his body and he rose again from the dead. And Stephen has that incredible oration, that incredible revelation that he shares with them. They become so angry at the idea that they kill him. And we know there, right from the book of Acts, that Saul held the coats of the people uh, that that did the stoning, the people that actually threw the rocks at Stephen to end him. And we know it says that he was approving of his death. So it it doesn't seem that he threw the rocks per se, but he was definitely all in favor of this event occurring. Now, from that point, that, that causes a, uh, an open door for Saul, as he's known at that point, to begin to persecute the church. And it says that he dragged them and tortured them. So he would take Christians and he would drag them and torture them to get them to recant. The idea of saying that, no, Jesus isn't actually the Messiah. This is all a lie. Philip is one of the refugees, as it were, that is running for his life with his family. He's got daughters uh, it would seem that he has a wife too, but it's just mentioned him and his daughters. But he, he runs for his life because of Saul, because of the persecution that Saul uh, was part of and, and perpetuated. He runs knowing that his friend Stephen has just been slain, possibly before his very eyes, being hit with rocks until he dies. He saw that profound forgiveness of Stephen where Stephen cries out, Lord, don't account this to their, uh, don't account this sin to them. Forgive them from what they're doing right now. And so it is that Philip who witnessed all those things, experienced them. His life was robbed of him or his possessions, all these things. He's fleeing for his life that Paul just recorded for us by Luke, by the Holy Spirit, just nonchalantly stays at Philip's house. That Philip says, you know what? I forgive you for what you did. Not only do I forgive you for what you did, you can come and stay at my house under my roof with my daughters that aren't married yet and you can sleep here with them and with me. I mean, this is some radical transformation. Think about that. You know, we're, and, and, and we're so quick. If somebody has a different political view or somebody has a different, uh, uh, well, I don't know, any view, religious view, musical view, it doesn't matter what. We just go sort of like, oh, you're dead to me. <laughs> you know, you don't know. You're, you're. I can't, we can't have fellowship. We can't talk. You know, we're, we're, this guy invites into his home the man who stole everything from him and fellowships with him. And it says he was there for many days. It wasn't just some overnight thing where Philip could grin and bear it and like, oh, it's good to have you, Saul. But, he, but the many days, getting up, feeding him, taking care of him. I'm not saying like weird stuff, but just providing for him, you know, all those things. Forgiveness, it's radical. Because without forgiveness, true forgiveness, the idea that I can lay aside what someone has done for me to me I'm not talking about abusive situations or something like that, but when someone has repented, when someone is, is that I can accept them back into my life and I can receive what they, what they have to say and I can also provide for them and help them and love them in that way. That kind of forgiveness is what's needed in church, right? In, in the, the called out gathering of God's people, it's needed in our families, it's needed in the community, And it's going to be forgiveness, ultimately, that that expression of love through Christ where we're going to see, or a place, I should say, where we're going to see, I think, tremendous growth in our life and in those around us, and trust and in comfort and peace, all these things. Uh, as we learn to forgive each other. And it's kind of in that vein that today in Acts chapter 21, uh, we see a very interesting portion of Scripture. I think it's one of the most debated portions of Scripture, one of the most, um, uh, I don't know, surmised, you know, uh, interjected, you know, all these uh, um, thoughts on was Paul right, was Paul wrong, was James right, was James wrong, were the elders right, were the elders wrong, you know, what was happening here, it's just, it's pandemonium. And you've you got to love it because it's pandemonium and the Lord is still on the throne and we don't have to today come up with who did what was right and what were all the right or wrong decisions. We can just take, I think, some lessons from the heart of the people that were involved and kind of move on with that. So it's with that that we'll turn in Acts chapter 21. And in verse 17, he says this, When we had come to Jerusalem, that is Luke, Paul, and the list of about 11 other people, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things of God, excuse me, the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads." Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality." Then Paul took them, and the next day, and he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So, a pretty interesting story, pretty interesting time in church history. And we've talked about this a lot, I think, over the weeks. And I think it's important to realize that the church has always had problems. Oftentimes, uh, especially in, in I would consider us kind of a conservative circle uh, scholastically or you know, scholarship of the Bible wise and there's kind of this sometimes like it's like when people mention like the first century church or Fox's Book of Martyrs or you know, one of those old books that are from that kind of that recount that era for us it's like our eyes roll back in our heads and there's just this bliss of back when the church was pure back when people got saved and never sinned again and there were just never problems and kind of this illusion that the church has just been like jesus you know ascended and then everybody was golden right up until the dark ages and then everything went bad but then to realize that the church has always wrestled with things it's always had difficulty now just remember time wise This is 20 years from essentially right around the ascension. It's been about 20 years since Christ has gone into heaven, and now the church has been working through things. Remember the the uh, about five years ago from here was the Jerusalem Council, but Acts 15, and so that's where they there was a council where all these believers got together in Jerusalem and decided can Gentiles be saved. So it took the the church 15 years to come to an official conclusion that you and I could be saved. Isn't that kind of wild? And there's a reason for that, and there's a history for that. And there was, you know, as far as how the Gentiles, for the the previous 800 years before Christ came, there's a pretty radical history of how the Jews were abused by essentially every Gentile nation that conquered them, including Rome, right? So they're, they're under Roman rule at this time. They don't have their own authority. They don't have their own uh, they don't, they, the, Rome took away their right to execute people. I mean, there's some substantial things that are going on. We're not justifying hate or anything like that, but that's, that's what was, was happening. So it takes the church a long time. It takes Peter a long time to realize that the, the, the Jewish law is not to be followed for, for righteousness' sake or sanctification's sake. It takes James a long time to realize this. So what we're reading here is a product of that. What happens? Paul is on, he's returning back from his third missionary journey. He shows up and they're greeted with joy, right? It says the brethren, they were so glad to see them. They were genuinely glad to see them. And then as they come in, they they say that Paul says that he related uh, one by one, meaning like he was very meticulous in relating what God was doing amongst the Gentiles. And he had witnesses about what God was doing amongst the Gentiles, just like he did five years prior when he shows up at the, the Jerusalem council. So you have Paul here relating that Gentiles can be saved. Gentiles are being filled with the Holy Spirit. Gentiles, God is doing this great work among the Gentiles. And their response is, this is really great. This is a greatly rejoice. And, but then they say, but there's a problem. And this is, again, where it gets pretty interesting. And he says there in verse uh, uh, 21, it says that, oh, I'm sorry. in the end of verse 20, he says, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews... Of those who have believed, they are all zealous for the law. Now, we know from way back at the Jerusalem Council that there was this section of believers, and they're always called believers through the book of Acts. That's important. They're always referred to as believers. In in, in this case, they are believers that were of the sect of the circumcision meaning that they were people that got saved or also they're called the sect of the Pharisees. They were Pharisees that got saved, meaning they put their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, believed him to be the promised Messiah that one day would come back and reign. But they were still zealous, concerned about, taken up with the following of the law, okay? So what happens is just like every church on the planet, for the most part, obviously I haven't been to all of them, that there's problems. There's people that think one thing and there's people that think another thing. You know, we're, yeah, I know, it's crazy. And the funny part about that dynamic is that when somebody's quiet, we just assume that they think what we think. And there's, you know, <laughs> praise God for that, I think. But anyway, so there's, but you have this, this, this dynamic here where there's, there's Jews that are all in, like Jesus is the Messiah. We don't keep the law for any kind of righteousness or sanctification's sake. You have people that are Greeks that are like, we never even kept the law, so we have this letter from James from five years ago that kind of lists out some things that we're not supposed to do, and they even said why in Acts 15, if you were to read it, James says the reason why we're writing this letter is because there's Jews in every city. They're trying to make sure that there's a peace between Gentiles and Jews as they get saved. They're trying to Promote unity in writing that letter, right? So that whether the letter was right or wrong or whatever, it came from a good place. And they write that letter. Now we fast forward to here, and what's the concern is like all these people that are still zealous for the law, they're believers, they're in home churches and whatnot because there's we don't have after Solomon's portico. We never really read of like the three thousand person church again. Just that there's that's going on in different locations around the city, and their their concern is like, hey they're going to eventually find out that you're here. And they've been told that you forbid, that you say to forsake Moses, stop circumcising your children, and that do not observe the customs that we have. So number one, one of the problems is, that's a rumor, right? Because Paul never said to forsake Moses. He never said abandon all the customs, do not observe the customs. And he never said do not, circumcise your children he never said any of those things what he said and what he talked about was the fact that keeping the law whether it's the ten commandments whether it's the levitical tenets the 600 and whatever levitical tenets or whether use your own law that there's no law that can be kept in order to be righteous with god or to become more like god it, it can't be done it's, 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 we're a, apart from the law now, it's important to note that by this time, Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, the letter to the Romans, and the two letters to the Corinthians had already been written. Okay, so when they're going through this, Paul had already written those letters. So let's, I just want to, just real quick, let's turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians is kind of a, um, it's almost like a commentary on Romans, it's like the condensed version of. Of the book of Romans, and the book of Romans is a huge uh, book that is or a letter that Paul writes, where he lays out essentially the exact mechanics of how salvation works and what God is doing, where the law fits in, how our old nature clashes with our new nature in Christ, how to walk with God and not be a slave to sin anymore, and how to find victory in the risen Christ and in. Essentially taking our thoughts captive and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. And Galatians is kind of a mini version of that. Instead of 16 chapters, it's 6. So in Galatians chapter 2, just to kind of illustrate what was going on in the church and illustrate what illustrate what Paul is teaching, we'll pick up in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Now let's just pause there for a second. Because he stood condemned. We don't really think in those terms, do we? We think in like, here's Peter. He's got the, you know, I don't know what century art that is, but he's got like the big round thing behind him, like his halo. And he's just like, <laughs> right? That's how we think of the apostles. They have big round things. They do nothing wrong. I mean, they were losers. And then Jesus saved them. And then from there on, they just said everything right. But that's not actually who they were. There were people like us. There were people that knew Jesus intimately. They, they had heard him. They were with him. And I'm not trying to put Peter down, but they were learning things, just like we're learning things. And so Paul had already written this letter. This letter is already in circulation when they say, brother, there's a problem. So it's noteworthy. But he says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. <laughs> Pretty rough. For before certain men came from James. This is the same James. This is not the apostle James, the brother of John. He's already been killed. This is Jesus' half-brother. So when certain men came from James, Peter retracted. He was eating with the Gentiles. So before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when he, uh, they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Remember, Barnabas, he's a longtime character here in the book of Acts. He's the guy they send to Antioch when the church of Antioch starts. Barnabas means he was nicknamed by the apostles. It means son of encouragement. When we go back and read about Barnabas, the whole, everything Barnabas does is reconciliation, right? When Paul tries to show up at some churches and they're like, oh no, bro, that guy is not coming in here. And it's Barnabas that's right there like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like the Lord's worked in his life, he's legit, he wants to help you. And they're like, no, okay. And then they, they let him in. But it's Barnabas constantly interacting, interceding, encouragement, forgiveness. That's who he is. It was so bad that even Barnabas... Who's from uh, Cyprus himself he's not even like a Jerusalem local that he retracts and stops eating with Gentiles. And, and, and if you take this out of just words and you begin to think of what that would be like, these are, these are Asian, or Asia Minor, these churches. These are not Jewish churches. These are very Greek Roman churches, that, that meaning the citizenship of the, the bulk of the people that are there. They're not Jewish. And so all of a sudden, the Apostle Peter, you know, the interesting thing about being a church leader is that anybody can say whatever they want, and it just happens. But if I say something or a church leader says something, it ruins the church. you ever noticed that? Like if I were to have like a sudden rager up here and start pounding it, it would destroy everything really fast. If one of you guys stood up and be like, you're lame, and then ran out, it would be like, well, that was weird, and we'd move on with our life, right? <laughs> so when you have the Apostle Peter saying, I'm not going to eat with these guys, I'm not eating with them. Think of what that does to the church. Can you imagine if we had, a, if we had a, uh, uh, one of our meals here and the, a couple of our elders walked in and you're like, hey, come sit at my table. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm just gonna." How would you take that? Would you be like, I love this place. Man, they're so loving here. I feel so accepted. This is so fantastic. No, for many of us, that would be it. We'd be like, forget you guys. You've wronged me. I'm done. I'm not going to address it. I'm just going to leave angrily. So Peter, this is, a, this is a big deal, I guess is what I'm trying to say. This is a really big deal that Peter's doing this. And Paul says, I'm, I, I stood up in public, and I said, you got, you're to be condemned for what's happening here. This has already happened. This, when, when, when they start talking to Paul, all this has already gone down. But he's going to expand on why he did it. Verse 14, he says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how do you force the Gentile to live like Jews? And he says, verse 15, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And he says this again in Romans, and he says it again in the Corinthian letters. He says it again in the Colossian letters. This idea of justification by faith and not through works is in every single letter that Paul ever wrote in some, in big in in large chunks with with large explanations and some in very small chunks with small explanations. This was one of the pinnacle ideas of his ministry. It was his soapbox. It was what drove this guy. The grace of God through the, the cross of Christ, the grace that was poured out on humanity because Jesus Christ bled and died for what we deserved. That he literally paid our debt and rose again from the dead. And so now he comes to Jerusalem, and they're like, hey, here's the thing. They've heard some rumors. And I want to stop about and talk about this for a second. Because everything they said about him in that case was not true. He didn't say any of those things. And I just want to encourage us as Christians. You know, in 1 Corinthians 5, it's interesting because Paul says, we don't judge the outside world. Like, our job is not to judge the outside world. And he says, I wrote to you before not to keep company with with, uh, fornicators and drunks. And he says, but I wasn't talking about the outside world because then you have to leave the world. He says, I was talking about the church. It's very interesting because Paul says we judge in the church. And he doesn't mean we measure each other, and we're going to talk about that more. But when we see behavior that's destructive... That's destroying a person's life or those around us, then we say, we go, hey, I want to help you. And there's a there's a way through love and through the leading of the Holy Spirit to say, I'm judging this behavior. I can look at this behavior and the fruit of it and say, This is very, this is bad. And, and I want to help you through that, right? But there's this idea that Paul's communicating here, that there's this judgment that takes place that he's uh, in establishing and communicating in the church and, and working through all that. That that tends to not make sense. <laughs> Essentially, what Paul is is talking about and what's happening here is that everything that he believes is now being thwarted. And now there's these rumors that are causing this entire section of Christianity to reject his teachings. This is the core point. Somebody, whether it's believers or unbelievers, the circumcision, whoever it was, a group effort we don't know, because they were sharing rumors, in this case that were not true or were half-truths, It made it so there was an entire sect of individual who would not pay attention to his teaching. So we need to be careful as believers that we don't spread rumors and we don't perpetuate rumors about different people or about churches or even about ministries. It's perfectly acceptable to say, I reject this idea. I reject the idea that if I speak something into existence, that that means that God will do it in my life. I reject that idea. I don't have to reject any person that says that because I can just reject the idea. I can reject the idea that that Satan is Jesus' brother, right? But I do not have to hate or judge or try to destroy the person that says that. You know, let me give you an example. Um, uh, And I'm going to use this example because it's on the positive side, because I don't think it's healthy to mention names from the podium but Rick Warren, okay? Let's just roll with me. To some, you know, I knew a guy one time who said to me, in earnest and in care for God's people, Rick Warren, this is a direct quote, Rick Warren is on the team to usher in the Antichrist, okay? Because he cared about God's people and, and whatever, all right? And it was from a genuine place. This guy, it's just, it's just what he believed, he was big into conspiracies and different things like that. And he said he endorses homosexuality in the church. He endorses uh, Chrislam, the merging of Christianity and Islam. And he endorses, I can't remember, like psychology as a, as a remedy for, for people or whatever. So I thought that's interesting. So I don't, I don't know anything about Rick Warren because he's never called me and said, Hey, James, what do you think I should do with my ministry? You know, he doesn't consult me on doctrinal issues I have nothing to do with him. I've never talked to him. I've never act, interacted with him. I've never had even a platform. To, I don't know anything about him. I know he's got a really big church called Saddleback in California, and he wrote some books. That's, I just told you everything I've ever known about Rick Warren. So then I go, well, okay, cool. I'm gonna, uh, interesting. I'm going to go check out this, his website, right, because it's church, and real churches have websites and whatever, I guess, and whatever. So I go, like, <laughs> obviously, I don't believe that. So I go to the website, and I check out what we believe. Boom, like first or It may not have been the first one, but Jesus Christ is the only way a person gets to heaven. I'm like, that seems to kind of shoot down the Chryslom thing. Boom, you know, a person is only saved by grace through faith and believing in Jesus Christ as, as Lord and Savior. Oh, okay, I can get down with that. I mean, just like down the line, like all these things that people are saying. So that's interesting. So I listened to one of his sermons. It was great. It was, it was, you know, I thought maybe I should play this instead of talking. Maybe do better. He can have an unofficial satellite up here. But I just thought, you know, he just, his, whole, his whole teaching that he did was about the fact that the decisions that you make today will decide who you are in 10 years. So if you decide to forgive today, if you decide to let God work in your life today, then 10 years from now, you will be a person who's grown in the grace of God and have opportunities in his kingdom. And I thought, that seems pretty solid. So I go, I'm going to listen to another one of these. So I listened to another one, and it was the gospel. There's the fact that Christ died for sin and rose again from the dead. And every, so here's the thing, and here's why I bring that up. Because for some reason, Rick Warren's a very polarizing person. And there's like, there's like these, they call them discernment websites. I'm not sure that that's really the right name for them. Uh, but they're websites that basically watchdog people. Christians that have made it big, as it were, and they just lie in wait to to accuse them. I started doing some more research on Rick Warren, like, does he endorse homosexuality? No, it's right on his website. He, he writes this thing that basically, I mean, this was five years ago or so, but he writes this thing basically how he does not believe that homosexuality is a valid expression of human sexuality that is between a man and a woman, but that Christ loves homosexuals, died for them, paid for them, and rose again from the dead. And there's no, nothing about being a homosexual that keeps you from being saved. It was a very gracious and glorious thing to read, very encouraging. So I thought, okay, well, I guess he doesn't endorse that. So then I did a little more research. And here's why people were saying that he endorsed homosexuality. Because he took a couple million of his own dollars that he made from writing books and donated it to doctors for AIDS research. And some of those doctors were homosexual. And so someone makes a rumor and says, this guy endorses this. Do you see what I'm saying? And it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. The Krizlon thing, all those things. He shared some sort of prayer with some Islamists or something like that. Here's the deal. Would I make all the decision that Rick Warren has? Probably not. I probably wouldn't. Would he make all the decisions that I have? No, I wouldn't. Can you imagine if Rick Warren started a campaign to squash our church because of doctrinal distances? It wouldn't be very hard, would it? When your church is 15,000 people and you have a national stage, he could do one interview and we'd have hundreds if not thousands of people picketing out in front of our church. Because somebody runs an anonymous discernment website somewhere. They are able to take tweets out of context and all sorts of things, say whatever they want because he's not going to do anything about it. Rumors destroy. They destroy. The enemy comes not but to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan is not his name. Satan is his title, the adversary. His name is Lucifer. So when we engage in rumors, when we engage in launching warfare against other people, let's just be careful. Let's be very careful. And let's not, the rumors that we start should be like, I saw God really use that person. It was really cool. Those are rumors that we should be starting. God did a great work over here, He did a great work over there. It's not for us to try to tear people down. If Rick Warren, or James Aiken, are doing something wrong. God will measure that and find him wanting. If someone comes to us and say, hey, do you believe this idea? We, and it's not something we, we believe is scriptural. We can say, no, we don't. And that's good enough. And let the other people be what the other people are going to be. Let's just follow Jesus and, and, and love one another. In this case, people start rumors about Paul and they end up, basically making it so that this whole section of Jews that need to hear what he has to say are already prepared to reject him. And that's James's fear. And I just wonder how many of us could benefit sometimes from a, maybe a guy like Rick Warren or whatever. Uh, I'm not endorsing him. I'm not condemning him. Um, and, but because somebody told us one day that he's the devil, that we're just like, well, everything he ever said must have been the devil. We have to be careful with that. Anyway, so we move on back to Acts chapter uh, 21. So Paul is clearly teaching that people do not have to follow the law. He is not teaching that to maintain a custom would be wrong. Remember in Acts chapter 18 on his way to Jerusalem, he has his head shaved because he was completing a vow that he had made to God, a Nazarite vow. So he's not saying that to apply any part of the law to your life is sin. He's just saying don't ever apply the the law to your life as a source of feeling justified before God or as a source of feeling more sanctified because we did or did not do that thing. Does that make sense? He also makes the point that if you're going to keep the law in that way, as a way of righteousness, that you're a debtor to the entire law, the dietary, the, the ceremonial, the health portions of the law, the whole uh, kit and caboodle, as it were. So we'll move on. So they've been told these things about you. And then he says there in verse 22, what then is to be done? So, hey, we need a plan for this. They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. So they say, we have a plan. And this is where people, uh, in, rightly, I think, of in a, in a good place. They debate it and they go, well, see, look, it says we have a plan. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit has a plan. And it's like, well, okay, I feel like we might be splitting hairs there. We, don't, we weren't there. We weren't in the conversation. We don't know what's being said. We just have some facts that we can look at. And the fact in this place is that they see that there's going to be a problem, that these people are not going to listen to Paul. They're going to reject him. And so they say, we have a plan. So we have these four guys that are zealous for the law. A Nazarite vow, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's what Samson took. And, and it's the, the Nazarite vow is essentially the idea is that I am voluntarily setting myself aside for God's service. And so you couldn't touch anything that was dead. You couldn't touch anything that grew from a vine. Uh, you couldn't eat, like, grape seeds or anything like that. You, you, there was a, a certain symbolic uh, freedom from anything that can be construed as alcoholic uh, or death or anything like that. Uh, and then there was, there was uh, portions number six. There were portions, like, for example, if you accidentally touched a dead thing, that you would reshave your head, start your vow over, these kind of things. So the idea was, is I am voluntarily setting myself aside for all that God has for me. Well, that's, not, that's not a bad deal, right? I mean, we're not gonna be, oh, you can't do that. Whatever you do, don't do that. You know, hopefully, we're not gonna say that. So, what happens is these are four guys that are done with their vow. And it could be, it was up to you how long it was. You, you could say, I'm gonna be a Nazirite for a year. So, after you, you shaved your head, which kind of spoke of new life and freshness, you just let your hair grow. You wouldn't cut it again until after your vow was done. So, when your vow was done, you made three sacrifices. So three sacrifices per person. It was an older lamb, a younger lamb, and I believe a goat. So those are the three things that you'd have to bring as a sacrifice. And then you would reshave your head to show that vow is over, and now I'm moving on with my life. Not like I'm moving on from God, but I'm now moving forward. I'm not going to be a Nazarite. I can touch dead things. I can help bury people, you know, whatever it might be. So these four guys had finished that vow. So they were, it was time for them to go in, offer their sacrifices, and shave their heads again. And so they said, this is our plan. We want you to go with these guys and then have your head shaved and then pay for their sacrifices and for them to have their heads shaved. And then everybody will know, and this is kind of the kicker, and this is where the problem lies. It says that at the end of verse 24, but that you yourself also live under the observance of the law. This is really weird. We already read Galatians. We already know that that he stood up and said, I don't observe the law. And he's challenged Peter, you don't live under the law. And now you're trying to treat Gentiles and force them to live under the law. Have you ever been in a situation that's just so weird you have no idea what to do? That's what's happening here. You have rumors. You have brethren that, that love Christ and believe things that are wrong. You have Paul who's just trying to fulfill his ministry. You have James who's trying to orchestrate a church where all this is going on when he himself is clearly struggling with what place the law has in our lives. You have all this going on. Sometimes in life, you just do the best that you can. And we're all in that same boat. And I mean with earnest. I always joke with my daughter because when she was really young, when Chloe was young, she would like wash a dish or something. And then it would be like dirty. And I'd be like, hey, you didn't finish this dish. And you go, well, I tried. And I'm like, well, I'll try to pay your allowance this week. <laughs> what does I try? You're like, where's Yoda when you need him? There is no try. You either do it or you don't. Like, and, that's, and that's a lot of times with I tried. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about earnest. Sometimes you just do the best that you can. And so here's the thing. Who's right? Is it James? Is it the elders? Is it Paul? Is it Who's right? Who knows? They're doing their best. We're not here to judge what they did. We're just here to say, how could we walk through and how do we walk through difficult situations in, in, in a similar way? And we'll talk more about that. But they want Paul, for, they want people to think about Paul that he obeys the law, that he's observance of it. It means to keep or to guard the law. That is not what Paul did. That is not how Paul walked. And they're asking him to do something that in some respects is the opposite of that. In some respects it's not, because he himself did keep a vow. But the reason they want him to do that is so that other people will believe that he walks in observance of the whole law. I mean, talk about a conundrum. Talk about a difficult situation. Talk about what do I do? How do I do this right? How do I, you know, do I just stand up? What happens? And it's all because of rumors. It's all because of rumors and people trying to deal with how the, their culture fits in with their church, basically. That's a bit of an oversimplification. But. So he says there, then they, in verse 25, they make a point and they say, oh, as for the Gentiles uh, who have believed, we've already sent them a letter. Which I'm not really sure why he reiterates that because he was there. Paul was there when they drafted the letter and sent it. So I think that they're just trying to say, like, hey, we got the Gentiles covered, uh, but we need this for, for the, the Jews, which is interesting because one of Paul's messages over and over again in different books is there's no more Jew or Gentile. There's no more slave or free. There's no more male or female. That we're all one in Christ. that all have equal value and all have equal contribution to the gospel and to the kingdom. So now they're saying, they're making this weird division, saying, well, for Jews, you guys do this, observance of the whole law, and then for Gentiles, well, you guys just make sure you don't fornicate, you don't eat things that are strangled, you don't eat things that are sacrificed to idols. And there's one more that I can never remember. But he says, you know, those are the things, oh, don't eat blood. And he says, those are the things that, that, that you guys have. So now all of a sudden you have this different standard in the, in the body of Christ. Like, the, like, you know, it's weird. The whole thing's just weird. And so Paul decides to do it. He decides, then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself. Himself along with them, and went into the temple, and giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and then offering presented uh, for each one of them. He takes out of his own personal money, evidently, or maybe he had a rally money. I don't know how much these sacrifice costs. I imagine you know there's eight lambs and four goats involved in this. So I mean, I guess if I went out, I I think I'd be in, into that for at least like a few hundred bucks. I don't know how much livestock costs, but. It seems like it'd be a sizable amount. Then, if you figure in, remember Jesus cleansed the temple twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of his ministry. And both times, who did he clean out? The money changers and people selling animals. Why did he do that? Because it was a racket. What would happen is, you would have, like if you came from far, you would have uh, Roman money, a drachma or whatever, and you would bring that Roman money and they would say, oh, oh shoot, you want to donate to the, to the temple? Yeah, we don't take heathen money. You're going to have to change that with our conveniently located money changer over here and he'll give you a rate and you can get temple shekels for that. So you go, oh, okay. You know, it's, and I walk over to this guy and be like, yeah, I need five shekels because I had a male that was born this year and I'm pretty excited about my son. So here's my temple tax. And they go, oh shoot, yeah. The exchange rate is, and it was astronomical. So basically, instead of paying your five shekels, you're into it for like you know, 25 shekels in the, in the conversion. And then if you, if you needed an animal to sacrifice, they would literally, you'd bring your lamb that you walked from your, you know, wherever it was, and you would bring that and you'd say, you'd present it to the priest to inspect it, and they would go, yeah, see this little blemish right there? Mm. Do you have ticks? Yeah. Oh, this. Yeah, that one's not sacrificable. But we have this nice 2021 model over here, and this has already been pre-inspected by the priests. And if you buy this with your temple shekels that you just got ripped off over here converting, you will sacrifice this for you, and it's pre-approved by us for God. And so you go, shoot. Okay. Uh, well, I guess I need that. And then it was an exorbitant price. It was super expensive. And so that's what was going on oftentimes in the temple. And that's why Jesus cleared it out. And he, said, he said, don't make my father's house a den of thieves because they were ripping off people that were just trying to come and worship God. That was the deal. So perhaps Paul even had to put up with that. But he paid. Maybe he had to rally the guys that were with him like, yeah, hey, I could use some extra dough because I need to, there's a lot of animals and those guys, you know, they're not cheap. We don't know how he came up with the money. But he brought his money and he paid for those sacrifices and he paid for those men to have their heads shaved. And you think to yourself, would I do that? Was that the right thing? I mean, you're literally like kind of playing into this plan where you're kind of falsifying what you believe and you're paying for these dudes that, to try to make this. like. How, you, ever, you ever have that weird conundrum of faith in your mind? So I guess I'm not trying to make a mountain out of a hill here, but the important side of this account isn't was he right or was he wrong. It's really not. We like that. We love it when we know when people are right or people are wrong. We know it. We love it because it gives closure to us. We go, oh, I'm going to put you in the wrong box, and now I can ignore you, and you're in the right box, and now I can reference you when I want to. And for the most part, with ourselves, we're just convinced that everything we do is right because if we didn't do it, why we wouldn't do something that's not right. So clearly, if I do something, it has to be right. If you're not doing what I'm doing because I'm doing what, I, what is right, that means that what you're doing is not right. Because if you were doing what was right, you were doing what I'm doing. Right? That's what, it's literally what we do. We, we, we say, well, this is what seems right to me. Drums in the worship, not drums in the worship. The King James Bible, not the King James Bible. Well, clearly, I would never do something that's not right, so if you're not doing what I'm doing, you're wrong. That's just how human beings operate. I prefer this worship. I prefer that worship. Well, clearly what I prefer is right, because I got saved in 1992. Well, no, what I prefer is right, because I got saved in 1952. Well, no, what I prefer is right, because I got saved in 2002. Music is just the anthem of the year you got saved. You ever notice that? That's the music you love the most. But it feels right, so it must be right. Well, no, it's just different. And so when when, when something like this comes down the pike, it's not so much about, was it right? But why did he do what he did? That's, I think, worth exploring. And he already wrote about how he lives his life in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So even though he's already written this to the Corinthians, he's literally just living out what he's already expressing to them. A big part of 1 Corinthians 1 is Paul explaining to them why he's valid. It's really bizarre. He started the church. He was there for 18 months. And uh, basically false teachers begin to come in with different teachings and different things begin to happen. They become very loose in toleration of sin. They start looking at other doctrines. All this stuff is going on. So Paul's saying, no, like, look, guys, I'm the real deal. Remember, I started your church. Remember, it's because I love you. I care about you. I want you to grow. That's what he's talking about. And then in the middle of it, he says this very important idea. In in, uh, 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19, He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. We're going to read more, but check that out. That's a profound statement. Though I am free from all, you don't owe anybody anything. And I don't, you owe you, you don't owe me. You're free from all. You've been set free in Christ. That's what Galatians, the the big part of it, is all about. You're set free. You're free from the law as being a justification. You're free from having to serve at your church as being a justification. You're free. You have been set free from all. You're free. You have no obligation to me, save to love me, which is a tough one. But he says, even though I have freedom from all, I don't have to do squat for you. He says, I make myself a slave. To all, And the word slave there, it's the same word he uses throughout his, the, intro, uh, the introductions in his letters, where he says, I, Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. So here he's, it's translated servant, but it's really a Greek word, doulos, which refers back to an Old Testament practice, was essentially causing yourself to become an indentured servant or a slave of someone else. So in the Old Covenant, there's no... Because uh, the Old Covenant, if you remember, the law it governed an entire people, right? It wasn't just ceremonial, it governed matters of law, it governed matters of farming, it governed governed, uh, social programs. So since you don't have a central government where taxes and money is sent to, the social programs were all based on an individual thing. Things like you're not allowed, if you are harvesting your field and you drop a piece of corn, it was against Levitical law to pick up that corn. Uh, when you're harvesting your field, you had to harvest it in a circle and you weren't allowed to touch the corners because the corners were for the widows and the and the fatherless, right? The orphans, poor people that were allowed to come. When people were traveling, they were allowed to walk through the middle of your field. They couldn't take a bag with them, but they could walk through the middle of your field and, and just pick and eat off your field as they went through. So they were they were essentially localized, individualized social programs. That's how God um, wanted his people to, to help the poor. So it's in, in this law and in this... Uh, thing that, that Paul is going through. Where was I going with that? I don't know why I all of a sudden forgot. Oh, where essentially part of that was if a person became impoverished, since there's no social safety net for them, as a, as a dad, I could sell myself into uh, slavery, basically, for a maximum of seven years. The seventh year every person was to be released. So what I would do is I'd say, wow, that dude's farm is incredibly prosperous. So I'd walk up and I'd say, hey, yeah, Look at my shriveled tomatoes. Yeah, we're not going to eat this year. Can I please sell myself to you? And that guy has the opportunity to say, yeah, I'll buy you. And this is, I'll pay this. And I take that money and I give it to my family so that they can survive. And then I serve that person for the number of years. And then by that, I'm providing for my family. And then after that, he has to let me go. And there, it, was, it was different than slavery in the U.S. or Europe in the sense that you had to treat people decently. If you, if you harmed them or did something to them, you had to uh, send them away uh, with recompense for that. It, it was not like what we think of slavery. But there was a law that if this person that you sold yourself to was uh, very kind to you and provided for you, you could become what was called a bondservant. You could say, and you, you, you would go to the, basically the, uh, your master. And then he would take you before the elders of your your location where you live, the, the, the village of the city where you lived, and you would publicly proclaim, I love my master, he takes good care of me, and I'm going to serve him forever. And then they would go, okay. And then you go back to the house uh, that your master owns, and they put your head against the the door and your earlobe against the door, and they slam an all through it, through your ear, into the door. You're like, cool. Yeah. Then they pull it out, and they put a ring in, a gold ring. And then any time that you were out shopping, if you're in the bazaar or you're doing something, people would see that gold ring and go, that dude works for a very kind person. It was obviously a picture of Christ and a picture of, of, of serving Christ. But when Paul says that, when he says, I make myself a servant to all, he's saying I make, I bond slave myself. I sell myself to every person to sell them. And he does it with, with not in ignorance because he says that I might save some. Not every person. In other words, you're going to serve people that will just take your service and abuse it. You're going to serve people and you're going to help people that could care less about you or what you're doing or Jesus or any of that. And that's okay. But Paul says, you want to know why Paul, why he went and paid for those guys? Well, he did that, right, wrong, whatever. He did it because he makes himself a slave to all. He even notes that. He says, to the Jews... I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. So why did he do it? To win the Jews. That's why he did it. In his mind, he thought, I guess this is the best. I mean, I can't say it was in his mind, but ultimately what appears to have happened is that he says, I think this is the best way that I could win the Jews. Was it? We don't know because a riot breaks out. <laughs> we don't know if it was the best thing. We know, but we know, he, we know why he did it. Because he cares about the Jews. And then he says... Um, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law. Isn't that interesting? So he says, hey, I, you know what? If that's what it takes, if I need to abstain from meat sacrifice from idols, if I need to b- sleep in a booth on a tent on the side of my house once a year, hey, if I need to, whatever it might be, if I need to throw away all my wooden vessels that have been vomited into, it's <laughs> all a law. I can do that. I can do that for those that are under the law. See, one of the things that's really important about the church universally is that the shell can change. The outside can change. We want to minister to people with, where they are at. Yeah, Does that make sense? A couple years ago or a year ago, I'm bad with time, uh, I got the opportunity to do a uh, high school retreat up at the Dunes. And, and I don't know, it was like three or four teachings and then a Q&A session. And I would say about 80%, we, we did actually it turned out to be like a two-hour Q&A session, but about 80% of the stuff we talked about was the validity of same-sex attraction and not to get too graphic, but three-sums and stuff like that. And so I have a choice, right? I can be like, ye sinners, disgust me with your, right? Or we can go, okay, let's talk about that. Right. What does the word of God say? What does society say? Why are they different? How can we love people? We have to minister to where people are. We can't just go, hey, read the Bible. Hey, I struggle with anxiety. You should read the Bible. That's probably going to make people more anxious because they're going to be like, I swore in my wrath that I shall come back and destroy you. You know what I'm saying? I'm depressed. Hey, read the Bible. What good does it do? If you don't understand what you're reading, isn't that what like, Philip's original ministry was all about? This guy's literally reading, the, this eunuch is reading uh, uh, Isaiah 53, which we're like, Isaiah 53, obviously that's Jesus. And, and then he like, runs up to the, to the eunuch, and he's like, ha, ha, that, I want to see that in heaven, because I'd have been like, ha, can you stop? But you know, he runs up, and he's, like, and he's like, do you understand what you're reading? And the dude's like, No. I do not. <laughs> Can you help me understand this? What if Phil was like, just keep reading? You know? <laughs> what story will we have? But no, he's, he jumps up on the, on the chariot. I would have been very thankful for that. Like, whoo, thank you. Do you have some water, perhaps? But, so he's, he, he jumps up on the chariot, and he tells him exactly what it means. And the dude's like, I believe. Can I get baptized right now? And Phil's like, yeah, sure, let's do this thing. He doesn't say, well, here's what we're going to have to do. We need two weeks of discipleship. We need to make sure that you make the right confession. It was between the eunuch and the Lord. I'm not saying let's be cavalier. I'm not saying let's reject Scripture or not care about it. I'm just saying that we, I think we need to just, like, trust God. (laughs) You know? He's doing a great work. And let's minister and let's care. Serve one another. That was Christ's commentary about his own ministry. He said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his ransom or his life as a ransom for many. This was it, was Jesus' ministry, it was Paul's ministry, it was Barnabas' ministry. All these people throughout it was, um, oh, I'm terrible with names, it was, uh, uh, the lady in Ephesus that has the house, it was her ministry, just over and over. Jesus lived based on the ministry of, of women helping him survive with, with money and stuff like that. like Just giving and giving and giving and serving. That's how we're going to win people. Yeah. By ministering to them where they're at. Not making weird demands or judgments of who they are. Mm-hmm. But loving them, forgiving them, caring about them. Do we embrace truth? Of course we do. Of course, it's the truth that saves. It's the truth that sets you free. It's truth. But we minister the truth in love. So you have this really, I guess I, it's, it's this, this section is dear to my heart. Not that that has to matter to you. But it's dear to my heart because who knows what's going on? Who knows what the right thing to do was? They did their best. And they ministered and they cared for each other. And that's, that's really what God has called us to do to lay down our life for one another, to care for one another. And he says, when we do that on an individual basis and whether a church basis or community or relational in a, in a family or at work or whatever it might be, when we do that, when we walk in that way, he says amazing things happen. Yeah. People get saved. Yeah. People feel loved. Mm-hmm. To minister to them where they're at. Not to where we're at, not to where we're at I should say, mm-hmm. but where they're at. One last verse here in Romans uh, chapter 14, Paul illustrates this again, just to, to drive the point home. The first example was ministry. In this example, it's also ministry, but it's maybe on a more of a, I don't know, kind of under the current kind of way. He says there in Romans 14, verse 1, he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. That's really important. You know, we're not, we don't welcome people in, in our individual, and in our corporate lives, just to argue with them. You know, the idea of like, oh, I see you have this kind of weird idea that's not scriptural. Hey, why don't you come to church so that I can spank you about it? You know, that's, not, that's not what we want to do. Verse 2 says this, One person believes that he may eat anything, While the weak person eats only vegetables, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who uh, abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So this going back to this idea of did they do the right thing or did they not do the right thing? And this is a little bit different context. Now the context in in Romans 14 is probably not uh, meat sacrifice to idols because that's actually addressed in a different place. Uh, There is actually... Um, I've read a, I have researched a little bit, did some reading, and in the early church, one of the things that the Greek Christians struggled with is about 800 years before Jesus, there was a Greek philosopher, and I, for, I forgot his name. Uh, I looked at this a couple years ago. But uh, he basically had this idea that animals had souls. And so by eating animals, you were then ingesting the animal soul, and there were different outcomes from that that we don't have time to talk about. And so a lot of people were brought in by this philosophy. And so because of that, a lot of, there were a substantial amount of vegetarians in the ancient Greek world based on this idea that, of an animal having a soul and not wanting to take that or ingest that. And so Paul says, most likely, this is what he's referring to because he's already talked about meat sacrifice to idols. And the idea is that if someone, a Gentile, gets saved and comes into your church and says, I don't eat meat, And and, and probably from a weird idea, he says that the people that don't eat meat are not to despise them, right? And we, we, in our our culture, we use the word despise. We go, I despise that. Typically, what we're saying is, I hate that. It's it's uh, it's disgusting, whatever it might be. In this context, though, despise is the idea to disesteem or give no value. That's really what it means. So he says the person that eats, the person who's like chomping on that steak. That person doesn't look at the person who abstains, even if it's because a, a non-scriptural point, and say, and, and say, you have no value. I just value you. You're not valuable to me. But the person who abstains, who says, no, I have this conviction because I'm doing what's right, is not to look at the person who eats and judge them and say, you're condemned before God because of what you're doing, or you're condemned for what you do. Now, again, this is very hard for us because we like closure, we like to be able to just be able to categorize and go, okay, that's what you're doing. That's wrong. You're wrong. Okay, cool. I just know you're wrong, and now I'm going to be over here. But that's not what the church is called to do. We're called to rally around the fact that we've been forgiven by Jesus Christ, and he's building his kingdom, and we can be part of that if we're willing to humble ourselves and to serve him. That's what we're called to do as Christians, and is to move forward in this, in this not acceptance of ideas, we don't have to go, "Hey, it's cool that you think that animals have souls and that if you eat the animal, you eat their soul." Okay, I don't believe that, but I love you. Yeah. And if I have you over, I'll make asparagus, you know, whatever whatever it might be. <laughs> and he's going to go on, and he makes this point. He says, "Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand." I think sometimes we don't like that either. We like it, the Lord's able to make me stand. But if you're thinking wrong, why would he make you stand? But he says, the Lord will make him stand. That should really encourage us because we have all sorts of crazy ideas, mm-hmm. all sorts of feelings and all sorts of just conclusions that are cultural or unique to our thought processes or whatever. And we, we set those up as law and doctrine. If we try to cause everyone to say and believe what we say and believe, we're not going to do any favors to anyone. Instead, we just stick to the basics. Jesus Christ, crucified, raised from the dead. Sanctification, being, meaning being conformed to the image of God, into the image of His Son, over time, comes through grace, comes through listening to God, comes through obedience. Not through the law, that a person is always by grace through faith, from salvation all the way through. And then when you believe something different than, than what I believe or when I'm doing something that stumbles you, I can say no to myself. I love that. I'm free from all. That's, and I think the reason I, I harp on that is because that's kind of the, I love America, but that's the American banner. I'm free from all. I'll do what I want. I don't care what you think of it. Isn't that how our society thinks? It's, all, it's mine anyway. Your business, what is mine or your business? This is just me and the Lord. You have no right. That doesn't win souls. So you can have that kind of Christianity, and that's fine. It'll be a lonely one. Or you can look at it like Paul and say, hey, you know what? If that offends you or if that's weird for you, I don't have to do that. Now, I mean, obviously there's limits to that. If someone comes in and says, well, you know, I don't like, I don't like instruments in the worship, so you're not Christians. We can go, well, that's probably something you should probably seek another fellowship for. So it's not, it's not that we do every crazy thing that someone has for us, but we're able to in things that are peripheral to say, hey, I don't, I don't have to do that. I don't have to be that way. I don't have to, I'm not going to invite you over and, and drink a bunch of beer if you're an alcoholic. I'm not going to, hey, invite you over and have a big steak when you're uh, a vegetarian. I can minister in those ways. I can care about you. I can be your bond slave. And that's how the kingdom of God is built. It's by people that are willing to humble themselves and move forward for the good of others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example. Lord, thank you that uh, we have these uh, holy men and women of old that went before us and walked through difficulties and always found you faithful. Lord, thank you. as Your word says that there's so great a cloud of witnesses to everything that you've done and who you are. and that we're being cheered along um, because you're faithful. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, give us divine appointments this week. Each one of us, we'd be able to run into people and talk to people. Share your gospel with people. Invite the church people. And Lord, we pray that people will get saved. We pray that you bring people in uh, that don't know you. You bring people in that are uh, feeling lost or just bobbed about on the ocean and to find meaning and to find you. Uh, Lord, we just commit our hearts to you, and we thank you for being so kind to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you guys.